Welcome to On The Record, a podcast featuring candid conversations with entrepreneurs, business leaders, academics, and cultural influencers. Today's episode of On The Record features WiseLine CEO Bismarck Lepe interviewing Lynn Cherry, the general counsel at WiseLine. In this episode, they talk about Lynn's early days at MySpace, the importance of technology and media, and Lynn's new role in diversity and inclusion. Diversity and inclusion has been and continues to be a key strategic initiative for WiseLine and is integral to the company's operations and how WiseLine serves its customers. Remember, visit WiseLine.com to understand how to accelerate your new product development in the digital space, not only to grow revenues, but also to manage costs. With that, Bismarck, take it away. Hello, this is Bismarck Lepe. Dialing in again to the show that will one day be bigger than Joe Rogan's show. And today I'm very excited to have Lynn Cherry, uh, general counsel for WiseLine, our company, joining me today to talk about media and law and everything in between. Well, Lynn, I've, I've known you for about a decade and you know, the, the last 20 years, you've been at the forefront of the evolution of technology in the media space, starting um, at DirecTV and then going to MySpace and then working for one of the, the biggest uh, telcos in the world, America Mobile, and one of their subsidiaries, then going to the content and now here at WiseLine. Um, but in addition to that, you've also spent a, a significant amount of time uh, in Latin America. and. I'd love to learn about your career, but I, uh, first off, you've never learned to speak Spanish. How do you get, how, who, how do you pull that on up? Yeah, I, well, so I've spent a great deal of my time in Miami. And so geographically, you know, they say Miami is the capital of Latin America. So I've had the opportunity to work in the region and I really have developed a passion for the region over the years. And be careful because I do speak, I do understand a lot more Spanish than I speak. Um, But, uh, you know, I just think it's my passion for the region and my passion for media. I've always been with media companies in the region Um, that I haven't, it, it hasn't, prevented me from working in the, in the region and in the area of media. Um, but it is one of my regrets also, is that I'm not more fluent in Spanish. So I'm gonna have to work on that when I have more time. Well, you're immersed in the region. It's soaking in through your pores. But yes. let's talk about DirecTV. So DirecTV, when you were working there, was incredibly innovative. And they were really pushing limits on content and data and interactive experiences. Uh, what, were, what was happening in the early 2000s with satellites and could you start to see what was going to happen with the internet and its importance on the media industry? Yeah, at, at first we couldn't really see it. And you're right, satellite felt like super um, innovative technology and it worked really well and then especially because I moved to India for a year to launch direct to launch Tata Sky which was the satellite television platform owned by News Corp owned partially by News Corp there and 
it felt innovative in Latin America and India because it's so difficult to lay the infrastructure for a cable. And so this was a way to bypass that, to offer super premium television and to do it pretty, um, pretty easily and to a, to a wide scale of people. To, um, but after India, when you look back at the US, that was when like bandwidth was becoming more developed and you could stream content much easier. And around that same time, News Corp, which was the company I was working with, had bought MySpace. And when I came back, after being in India and seeing satellite television was great there, and after being in Latin America and seeing how satellite television was great there, coming back to the US, seeing how that market had developed in terms of internet bandwidth and popularity and penetration of devices. It felt like that was the new technology. And News Corp had bought MySpace, as I mentioned, and that was an opportunity I had within the company. And I jumped at it because it did feel like the future of content distribution. So that, but that, I mean, if we think about it, that hindsight's twenty twenty, and people talk about how you know, the MySpace transaction was, was flawed and it just didn't go very well, but it was very forward thinking. I mean, Friendster had come and gone. MySpace took over. Facebook was still, I mean, years away from becoming any kind of relevant or interesting company. Uh, what was the thinking behind the acquisition of MySpace? Yeah, I, I think it was a brilliant move. Unfortunately, it didn't play out the way it was intended to. But when you think about it, MySpace, I believe at the time, was one of the largest, if not the largest, video and music streaming platforms. Um, it was also ad-based. And so, I, I, I mean, during the MySpace days, there were so many super innovative advertising deals, not just around content, but also just generally, um, you know, monetization of the site, including a deal with Google at that time. And so it felt like it was the right deal, that concept of social media, you know, using a social platform as a means to distribute content was, really innovative at that time. And now when you see the players in the market now, Facebook and Twitter and others and TikTok, you see that they've taken that playbook and run with it in terms of, you know, this concept of ad-driven social media. And, um, and that was what MySpace was. And MySpace also created this great joint venture. It also didn't work out. I think it was just too early, but with all the music labels to distribute music in a, within a social platform. And um, so really what, what MySpace was doing was, was super innovative. The, uh, I mean, MySpace, again, was incredibly innovative. Everybody was on MySpace. Uh, 
you know, Google at one point tried to acquire Friendster. They weren't able to get the transaction done. So there was an engineer who built out this social network called Orkut. Then Fox Interact Interactive Media Group comes in and picks up MySpace. And like I said, Facebook was just kind of coming up. Did MySpace even consider Facebook a competition? I mean, it's interesting. So MySpace was looking at Facebook as more of a communication utility, as a social network, which they saw as different than a social media platform. And as such, also, like in the beginning, Facebook was really big within the university system. And, and, and then it started taking off, you know, publicly, like in the US and Canada. And, um, but, but in the beginning, especially, MySpace wasn't really looking at Facebook um, as a direct competitor in this distribution of content in a, so, you know, within a social platform. Well, Fox Interactive Media, right, was in the heart of LA, kind of like the rest of Fox Studios and, and Fox. Uh, and MySpace, given that it's close alignment with the music industry and media industry in general, there must have been some crazy parties. <laughs> there were, there were for sure. For sure. And, you know, MySpace did a lot of like original content deals with different production houses to create short form content that was, you know, that had the advertising component, you know, built in. And so there, you know, it was, it was a very creative place. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were definitely, there were definitely MySpace parties. It was, it was part of the culture, I have to say. So it, it's funny, we didn't officially meet until 2010, but I was, I was very involved uh, on the MySpace deal on the advertising fulfillment side at, at Google at the time. So I'm wondering if we were on conference calls going back no. and forth on the early days of, of the contract. But, you know, the, the acquisition of MySpace was what, 700, $750 million, somewhere around there, right? And the Google deal by itself, which was only remnant inventory, was $900 million. Right. So, I mean, it feels like a win, right? It felt like a huge win. I actually came into MySpace right after um, that deal was struck, which I think was, was negotiated by Mr. Murdoch himself. And... Um, and now, I mean, it was, it was considered a huge win. You know, and ironically, part of, part of the complaints that we heard about MySpace down the road, this is whatever, three years later, is that there was all this remnant advertising on the, on the site. So it's, it's interesting. And the... And what, what's, also, what's also really funny about the, that transaction, and correct me if I'm wrong, because again, you were on the other side, and I think I had already left Google, but wasn't the deal finalized like well after the contract had actually ended or right around the same day? So the deal was struck, there was a MOU, and then it took like three years to negotiate the, the final term. <laughs> yeah, it was a really complicated deal. And it seems like, 
it became even more complicated. I mean, MySpace was so, um, you know, striking new ground in so many ways. And the Google deal was just one of those. And so it felt like every time we went to the table with Google with a document, things would change or things would come up or, you know, both sides would realize new things about the deal and want different things put into the agreement. So it was, a, I mean, it was a challenging deal in that, in that respect. I mean, of yeah. course there was a term sheet, but this, you know, we're talking about the long, you know, the long form. Yeah. The long form took a, took a while. Um, yeah. I remember we used to have daily meetings, to talk about the inventory from the day before to see how much additional revenue inventory would happen the next day. And then something would be decided between the legal teams that would say that, okay, we're not allowed to talk about that anymore. So we can only make decisions based on this data now, which was crazy, which yeah. was really crazy. Yeah. So what point did you being on the inside say, you know what, Facebook, Facebook's actually a, going to be a significant player in the social media space and obviously a big competitor to MySpace. Yeah, it was, it was just like the level of adoption of, you know, of, of Facebook, the number of the sheer number of users. I mean, it just like when you looked at the, at the graphs of, you know, their total number of users on a daily basis, it was just, I mean, huge, huge, the level of adoption of Facebook. And I think, you know, we were, we were also, you know, trying to, trying to make the site better, like from a technology standpoint also, like it was, I mean, that was a challenge as well, that we were building this enormous, huge site with, on, on the basis of a platform that existed, you know, what, five to 10 years previously. And so, um, you know, for the, for the CTO and others in the engineering place, they, you know, I think we're, we're struggling with how to, how to have, you know, a site with so much content that was elegant, that users were happy with. And, you know, that was, that was a challenge also. The cost of tech debt, the actual cost of yes. tech debt. Yes. But there were some amazing people there, right? Um, yes. I mean, the leadership team eventually went on to be the leadership team at Twitter, at Yahoo, at many of uh, you know tech companies that are known and, and well respected. Yeah. Spotify. It must have been a great place to be, right? Brilliant minds all yeah. around you, all working on really cool things. It was so amazing. I mean, I worked with such incredible people. Um, you know, it's also Courtney Holt at Spotify and Jason Hershorn, who's, you know, just great in the media space and Mike Jones at Science. And I mean, there were tremendous, tremendous people there. You know, cause I think it was and the so first, you know, and, and everybody sort of got like, a lot of experience there that was really great and applicable to a lot of the sites that follow. I was, uh, yeah, I remember being at Google and then eventually being uh, at Uyala and trying to sell into uh, Fox Interactive Media and, and MySpace and trying to do things. Um, but that was on the tail end. 
But then after MySpace, you you left and you went to work uh, at America Mobile. Well, a subsidiary of America Mobile. Uh, can you can you tell the listeners or people watching all two people, maybe my mom and my brother, uh, <laughs> uh, who America Mobile is and why are they so interesting and and such such an important player in the media and tech space? So American Mobile, I started working with when I moved back to Miami from Los Angeles after being at MySpace. And American Mobile owns the Claro brand. Um, and it's the largest MBPD group of MBPDs, so satellite and cable companies in Latin America. And it's, so American Mobile is owned by Carlos Slim, who's one of the richest men in the world. So, you know, great platforms, incredible like subscriber relationships, and, you know, owned by a very, very, very smart operator and, and team of operators. How many users, paid users, do they have? It's definitely over 200 million. I'm not sure the. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that was the power that we saw with American Mobile is, you know, at that time, Netflix was coming into Latin America and American Mobile has had the opportunity to create like a standalone OTT service that could really compete because the ability to authenticate and have these billing relationships with over 200 million subscribers is a huge advantage. So to build a platform at that time, I mean, that's where we met. You had the Uyala technology to build a platform on technology that was new and, um, and that, you know, was sort of made in Latin America for Latin America and not like this, you know, just a global, OTT platform that was something that was unique for Latin America. It was really, you know, felt like a great opportunity. Uh, that's, I am very grateful for your going there because that we did get the opportunity to meet uh, and, and try to work together. But you were working at a subsidiary, subsidiary of American Mobile called DLA, uh, which was a company that was started out of Argentina, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And then it was brought into uh, a telco to try and innovate and launch an OTT, uh, you know, and very similar to what Fox Interactive Media did, bringing in a, an online media property, social network. Like America Mobile brought in this firm to help it launch its OTT. Did you take any of the learnings from working in a traditional media company that was bringing in internet assets to Latin America at Telco trying to bring in online media platform assets uh, to build technologies? Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of, one of the things that I brought was the understanding of how important technology is to the entire experience. You know, like we were just talking um, and at American Mobile, right, we had a legacy technology platform. So we were looking at bringing in new technology. 
And then the other, the other piece is the investment in content, you know, coming from a media company. I think the media companies do understand um, how important it is to invest in the content too. I mean, both pieces are just essential to having a successful platform. And um, so the, I think those were the, those were the, the two things that, you know, probably we talked, you know, most, most about. Um, and yeah. And, and, you know, of course, like, the company understood perfectly the, you know, the importance of the subscriber relationships, right? Because that's, that's the other piece that's so important is having that relationship with the end users and having the data and having, you know, that ability to, to really, you know, be able to target them and, and, you know, owning that billing relationship. It's huge, especially in Latin America. It's it's more challenging even than, or at that time it was more challenging even in in the U.S. where you know people give their credit cards all the time for you know those small transactions. In Latin America, it's it's not as it's not as easy. And one one of the things that I've I've always found interesting from you know, America Mobile, especially at that time, hugely successful printing money. Shortly after that, Carlos Slam for a period of a couple of quarters was the richest person in, in the world, they knew that they needed to invest in online technologies and these new services because they saw Netflix coming. At that point, Spotify was already a service that was, wasn't readily available everywhere, but it was, it was out there. Can you speak to the innovator's dilemma of trying to push new services and new technologies when you already have such an established business that's doing so well? What are, what are some of the challenges that you face? You know, I can invest in this that mm -hmm. is already yielding a ton of profit, or I can invest in this that's going to lose a lot of money and has the promise of, of something. You know, what were, what were some of the discussions that were had? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, that's, that that's interesting. Like, I think part part of the thinking is like, why do we have to do anything that much different if we can, you know, and, and, and I think a lot of the MVPDs, the traditional cable and satellite companies felt like, well, maybe we lose some subscribers to OTT, but let's create a, a virtual MVPD that's attached to our brands and that where you know we can give our existing subscribers content you know then having like a totally separate and you know totally separate service that's that's separate from our cable and satellite service and i i think that that's exactly right and and then they already have the content you just sort of expand the rights right if you have a deal with you know, let's say Disney, for example, you ask Disney as part of your negotiation for the channel deal, you ask them for additional content to put on your virtual, you know, streaming site that's attached to the cable site, you know, to the, to the cable um, subscription. Um, and you don't have to pay all this money for it. You know, I think that that, that was, that that it's, 
the investment in content. There, so a telecom company is already investing so much in content and there's this ecosystem that is established over many, many, many years where, um, where you can bundle all this content and ask for a fee and there's no reason to unbundle it. And, you know, maybe you just get a little bit more from the content owners to put on a streaming site. So you take care in part of the consumer's desire to, you know, watch anywhere on any device. So I, I think that they were thinking, well, we don't have to go all the way and have this separate service, right? Like a Netflix, let's just have a, a streaming service attached to our own and not, and not have to invest so much. You know, I, I guess that's, that's the investor's dilemma that, that you're talking about. Um, you know, but Netflix, Amazon, uh, you know, they're, they're going all the way. Theirs is like a completely separate service. And plus they're investing billions. I mean, not just hundreds of millions, they're investing billions in licensing content and creating new content. So that's, I mean, I think it was, it, it was that, it's that piece was, was a big part of it. And then also like just protecting like the ecosystem that you have. Like there's, there, there, I mean, still there's not a reason to like just blow that up, right? So it's, I think it is, it is a dilemma, it's tough. After DLA, America Mobile, you went to HBO. So media, media, media. Um, do you think that there's something in the culture of media companies versus startup tech companies that makes it much harder for these, for the media companies to really adopt innovative technologies or create innovative technologies? Yeah, I, I think that um, part of it, part of it probably is like the investment piece. So um, it takes a lot of money to develop great technology. And so I, I think that that's like just that willingness to make the investment necessary. And then I, I also think that there's so many, there's so much like legacy um, understanding of the media world. So, you know, the cable packages and the bundling and, you know, protecting the existing ecosystem maybe makes it um, difficult for engineer it, it I think it creates a little bit of um, of a barrier in that way because I think a lot of technologists and you probably know this better than me like to like develop for any situation like they want to just develop the best technology possible and in the in the space of traditional media you're you're a little bit confined to like rights deals and um you know that's that's a big issue that that i that i've seen is that you know when you're especially when you're acquiring content and you don't own it 
you're really limited by the licenses that you have or the licenses that you've given out restrict your own ability to really use that content in any way you want. And so I think that from an engineering technologist perspective, it could be frustrating because you're, you know, you're trying to, you're, you're so restricted, you know, you're so confined by all these rules, then it makes it, it makes it kind of difficult from that perspective. So let's talk about predictions, media space technology. Will there, 10 years from now, will there be standalone media companies? I mean, Amazon Media Group is huge. Netflix, start off tech, syndicating other people's content, they're creating their own content. Disney and Disney Plus, will there be a standalone, is there gonna be a space for a standalone media company? And if so, who is it? So when you say standalone media company, do you mean without like the ability to also distribute? Do you mean like a standalone content company without the ability to also distribute that content? Yeah. 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 I, 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 I think that there's a place if you want to be like, you know, what, they say an arms dealer and you just want to sell content to other services, but to be a major player, to be able to compete with the global tech companies like the Netflix, like, like an Amazon. I, I, you know, in the, it was interesting to read, you know, all of the AT&T documents when they purchased Warner media, um, because they talked about the importance of vertical integration. And, um, and it is like that scale is so important. I mean, you look at the, just the sheer numbers of Netflix, and I think they spend more than anyone, um, at least on content. And you're looking at like $20 billion that you have to spend, right? I mean, and that's global, of course. But I think it's without the scale, I think it's you, you you can't, I think it's so difficult to do it. Um, like even, even the players that aren't associated with telco, telcos, like you have the two players associated with telco, you have NBC with Comcast and AT&T with WarnerMedia, but then you have Disney, you know, they, they merge, you know, horizontally integrated with Fox. And then you also have CBS Viacom, right? And, you know, they achieve scale through, you know, horizontal integration also. Um, so they, you know, they may be successful. I mean, Disney certainly with Disney Plus has already, you know, shown great success. And um, CBS Viacom, they're looking at all access. I think you're talking about more like a Sony, you know, who is, you know, they're sort of the standalone media company that hasn't had, you know, any, um, any transaction that's resulted in additional scale. And I, and I think, you know, of all the studios that I mentioned, probably Sony is going to have, you know, more of a difficult time unless, you know, they have a different strategy, you know, which is to just do what they do really well, which is to, you know, produce great content and then sell it. I mean, 
still there's such a demand you know it is it is a great market because there is such a great demand for great content and um you know netflix is right their budget is 17 billion i hear for for this year and so if they want to do that and sell content to netflix you know that's that might be a good model too 17 billion basically what jeff bezos made last week <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when you speak scale, I, I think of two things, right? You, you have scale as in you already have the users, you already have a ton of content, you know, that's the, the Viacom CBS play. No one would argue with the fact that they have well-known brands and they, they have reach. But then there's also the, the other side or the second order effect of scale, which is the data you produce to be able to create content that people are going to yeah. love. So, but then I wonder, you know, where does the creative genius, like, where do, where do they fit in? You know, because there, historically, there have been people who have written phenomenal scripts, have produced incredible and produced and directed incredible films. Um, but then you have Netflix who says, I knew that House of Cards was going to be successful based on all of this data that I had about my users and what they, what they want to watch. Yeah. You need the data, you need the users. Where, where does that match? Right. So, I mean, Netflix has all the data, which is pretty amazing. And Amazon as well. Um, and even, I mean, Amazon distributes other people's content and channels as well, and they still have all the data. Um, you know, with Disney Plus, they probably are gathering a lot of data, but I think that, um, you know, what is so powerful about Netflix is that they have a culture of gathering that data and being able to, um, come up with insights. I mean, I, I, I've heard that, you know, even when, um, when determining how much to pay for license content, Netflix has a whole bunch of data that's behind every single, um, you know, offer to, to buy content. And so, you know, just that practice of relying on content and being informed that way, I think is so powerful. And um, the, the studios traditionally have not had that. Um, the studios traditionally have been sort of purely, you know, B2B. Um, so it'll be interesting to, to see if now, you know, certainly, you know, with Disney and, with CBS Viacom and NBCU and and Warner Media, if they use that that data to really come up with insights about what their what the consumer wants in terms of content, they haven't done that traditionally. Whereas Netflix is, you know, natively they've they've done that. And so, um, and I don't know. I mean, personally speaking, I. I think creative people are so creative and just come up with these ideas that are amazing. And I, I'm not sure that 
that they rely on data that much to determine what they what they think about ultimately when creating data. I mean, I saw HBO has such brilliant, brilliant, brilliant content and it wasn't based on data. You know, it was based on like these brilliant people who tell stories who have been around forever, you know, these type of people. And, um, you know, so I, I, I'm not, and I'm not sure what, I, I've heard of two, two, uh, two pieces of content from Netflix that were based on data that were, you know, Bird Box, I think is one of them, and then House of Cards, and they were both super successful. All right, so before we shift uh, to another topic, does Hulu survive? Dun, dun, dun. I does Hulu survive. I think that there's a place for Hulu. I, I think they've done a brilliant job at their advertising model. I do think that there's a place for advertising and an OTT streaming service that is more elegant and more, you know, part and parcel with the user experience. And I think they've done really well. It'll be interesting now that they're controlled by Disney to see what Disney decides to do, if it's sort of in competition with Disney Plus and they don't make the investment necessary to keep it. Um, they don't have the global scale, so that's kind of interesting to see, you know, what happens with that. But in, in the U.S., I, I think Hulu's done amazingly well. And uh, I, I think, I do think that it survives. I think that, that there's a place for like you know, live TV, current TV, and in that way that that Hulu exists. Um, so, yeah. Maybe Kyler will come back and buy it for Warner Media. <laughs> so let's let's shift a, a little bit. Uh, so, in the early days of WiseLine, I reached out to you to see if you could make an introduction to HBO uh, so we could pitch WiseLine. But before that, I hadn't seen you in two or three years. So it had been seven years since I, I last saw you in person. And then I remember I was on paternity leave and you reached out and you said, hey, I'm in town. And we got together and long story short, uh, it's almost been two years that you've been working with Wiseline, which, um, although we're now you know, approaching a thousand employees, significantly smaller than anything else you had ever done. Why, why the shift from you know, media, some tech, to a technology and technology services company? Yeah. So, I mean, in my career, I've always been fascinated by the technology. I mean, from DirecTV to MySpace and then, you know, to Clara Video and to HBO, like in every single place I've, I see how difficult technology is. Number one, it changes really quickly. And number two, to do it really well, you have to be super talented, even if it's been around for a long time, like streaming. It... Um, there's there's an art and a science to it and have a great deal of respect for technology and as i was leaving hbo i thought 
you know, it would be amazing to do something, you know, with a tech company and, um, and kind of be on the cutting edge. And so I, and then I had a great deal of respect for you. I loved working with you just the short time that we had the opportunity to work together. And I wanted to hear about what you were doing, this new company that you had, that you had created. I, you know, I, I loved working for big legacy companies, but I was, re I'm, I was super ready for an experience working and building a company. I, f I, I thought that that would be incredibly exciting. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you were someone that I just thought about and, and that's when I reached out to you when you were on paternity. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. So <laughs> what would you tell other people who are thinking of moving to a smaller company, maybe a, making the leap from a traditional industry to, a, to the tech industry because they know that every industry is going to change? What are the things that you weren't ready for? Oh, that I was not ready for? You weren't ready for going from this to <laughs> this. You know, I, I think so much of what I've experienced has been incredibly positive. So, like, there is, like, some stress, especially, like, in the beginning, like, you're worried about capital constraints, knowing how important it is to invest in a company. Um, you know, so that's sort of a worry that I didn't expect to have so much about a company. I haven't, you know, I've had the good fortune of not having to be worried about that. But at this, like the other side of that is like the excitement I have, like just doing deals and getting deals done and seeing clients, you know, become established. Like that, that feeling and that involvement and that engagement and having that level of impact on the business is something that's so rewarding. And then I think the, the other piece is, well, then of course, like, you know, maybe you don't have like the huge salary that you have for an established company, but you also have, you have equity in a company and you really feel like you're part, you know, you're part of it. Like you have, you know, you have such skin in the game. Um, but then, you know, the other piece is, um, that maybe was a little bit surprising and, you know, part of this experience of making an impact is being able to take a larger role um, with, you know, within the organization and lending expertise in areas that, you know, at a big established company, there's, you know, probably 10 people that, you know, provide expertise in that area. So you really don't need to, you know, it's sort of locked into, you know, such a, such a specialized role of, you know, making sure the legal and business affairs of the company were taken care of that, that didn't have as much of a, um, of a voice. Well, speaking about increased responsibilities, uh, you recently taken on the diversity and inclusion, inclusion chief director leader for our company. Where, given that this is so important, uh, 
in, in general, but definitely for corporate America, what are some of the things that the bigger companies can learn from the smaller companies in adopting more inclusive policies? So one, one big thing that I've learned from being at WiseLine is like giving employees autonomy to really just run with like, especially inclusion programs, programs that, um, that focus on underrepresented people in the organization that, and it's important for those people to feel a part of it because, you know, understanding that, um, you know, that's what helps us, you know, that's what helps us be happy at work. It's, you know, a company like WiseLine is so um, reliant on its talent um, to come to work and be creative and be engaged, like, you know, to have those kind of inclusive, um, in, you know, inclusive programs just to, um, to help the culture. Um, I was super impressed at, at WiseLine. I mean, I was actually, I was wondering like how that happened because when I got to the company, there was already such an established employee resource group that had so many activities around women and LGBTQ community um, and how to make, you know, social impact that was, you know, that was important, that was important to the employees, that the employees had so much autonomy to do that. Yeah, it's something that we worked on almost from the beginning and, and mainly because coming from the Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, I think, has been very forward-thinking and, and being more inclusive and uh, creating a, a program or a scheme of meritocracy. Uh, and given that we grew so quickly in Mexico, Mexico's culture is very much a monoculture. And because we are a global company uh, with deep roots in the Silicon Valley, we needed to make sure that we did build a, a company that was a lot more inclusive. And over time, even in our operations in Mexico, um, over 20% of, of the people who, who work at our offices in Mexico aren't from Mexico. Uh, we have a large population of, of Muslims from Egypt, for example, and we needed to make sure that they felt uh, that they were at a company that would appreciate them and their contributions, and they wouldn't feel as though they were the outsiders, even though they were a, a minority group. So we knew we needed to invest, and in the end, it's also the right thing to do just as, as humans and society. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of why WiseLine has such a great reputation, um, especially in Mexico where we have so many employees. Is, I, I think we do a great job just from an, an employee-driven perspective of creating a super inclusive work environment. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Lynn, it's been a tremendous pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, and I hope we get the opportunity to have another one of these. Maybe we can go behind the scenes on some of these incredible deals that were done in the media space. The off the record, on the record. Right. That would be fun. <laughs> Thank you, Bismarck. It's been a pleasure always talking with you. Thank you.